it has been quite some time since my last episode. The Amalgam Podcast is back with quite a remarkable guest. Uh, you've heard me mention the series. Malazan. Malazan. The, the 10 book series that I've spoken about on the podcast before, and I've brought it up quite a bit when we would check in on personal happenings and whatnot. And I have, I have Steven Erickson here with me, and he is the author. We went back and forth through Facebook Messenger of all places, and, and now I, I've got Steven here the day after Thanksgiving. Steven, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Steven Erickson, been writing full time since about 2001, I guess, somewhere around there. And including novellas, I guess somewhere around 25 or 26 books have been published so far. Not only is it fantasy, but you also publish your sci-fi novels, correct? Yeah, I try. try. <laughs> Just before we kick off, I want to I want to thank the the subreddit for Malazine because or Malazine because the, you your fans are very helpful. There's they're a very warm community. How yeah. would you how would you describe your fans? That's a good question. They do seem to be fully committed, which is, I guess, kind of the one thing an author is is dreaming of. You know, when you first start out, you write based on the premise that you're going to find an audience out there somewhere. But at the same time, I know for myself, when I was writing the novels, especially early on, I was writing to an audience of one, which was what the co-creator, uh, Ian Eslebon basically writing scenes that I knew he would enjoy and, you know, have a good laugh over or whatever. But then to find that the books are finding a readership is uh, the most rewarding aspect of things because it's all done on, on, on faith in a sense that, that you don't know who's out there. You don't know if you're actually going to be able to tap into their interests. And then you have to fight your way through publishers who are, who are convinced that, you know, the books aren't going to do, do well or, they're not worth their investment. And so, you know, I had a huge battle in the States to get a U.S. publisher. And by the end, I think the agent basically twisted their arms on it. But, I mean, and it's turned out to be, you know, one of the most, I guess, successful areas has been in, in, in the United States. So the books continue to sell well. And so, it, you know, it's, you look at the industry and you look at, you know, the profession and as a single author, like a lone author uh, with, with, you know, faith and belief in something, but you're fighting against a huge system. And if you don't, if you don't find the right person, uh, it's, it's a long, long struggle. Yeah. And, and I guess there's some timing involved that as well. If you don't, if you don't catch a break oh, yeah. once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Timing's huge. But at the same time, I mean, in many respects, one wants to be ahead of the curve, uh, not behind it. So mm -hmm. okay. that makes it harder yet. Yeah. Okay. For those who aren't already a fan of yours, can you give a little background for your education in archaeology and anthropology? Well, I worked primarily as a field archaeologist for about 18 years. And that was one of my great loves, was to get out into the wilds and, and excavate. And I would basically take almost any excavation job I could possibly find. It was kind of a golden age back then where there was funding available for research based as opposed to rescue style of archaeology. And so I ended up working Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, um, down in Central America. Uh, I, I've done some stuff in the States, in, in Wyoming. And just basically, yeah, taking, taking my, my skills everywhere. And I think it has helped a lot in terms of my writing. You know, it's, it's, I've been immersed in other cultures. I'm, one of the great things about a dig is that 
you're go you may end up going to a place you've never been to before and the culture may be very different but you have you have a base camp and that's secure well usually secure and that allows you to become far more sort of uh, immersed in in a place and that I found really uh, really useful really helpful um, I, I wasn't anticipating that it would be as useful as it was in the writing but it is yeah that's one thing um, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard this a ton but the level of detail for each culture that you can bring together and incorporate a history and or interaction with another culture or, or species if, if mm -hmm. you know however you want to um, divide them up but that that is is where you kind of feel like you're reading a little bit of a informational book sometimes mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. specifically also describing methods of tools or uh, clothing that's something that I love about the books one of my specialties was what's called lithics which is um stone tools. And one of the primary reasons is in prehistory, at least in North America, you have basically two, two uh, artifact assemblages. Um, one is pottery and the other is stone tools. Uh, not much else survives. Uh, you get some faunal stuff, but not much. And pottery bored me rigid. So um, I got into the stone tool stuff and then there was a lot of experimental archaeology at the time that allowed us to sort of basically learn how to make stone tools. And that becomes a very interesting process itself. And I know I, I sort of expounded on it with uh, the Talata Mass and some sections where they're talking about the, the fluidity of, 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 of flint and, and shirt and, and chalcedony, that it does behave like a liquid. And so it allowed me to sort of, you know, present things as in, in more metaphorical sense as well. Because I think some of the some of the stone tools I've I've seen, um, they just take the breath away. Just the skill level is extraordinary. So, um, yeah, stone tools was sort of one of my areas. Rock art was the other one. Rock art, interesting, yeah. interesting. That's pretty incredible to be able to have that um, that experience to travel to learn about other cultures. I mean, that's amazing. It's, it's been, it's, yeah, it's been one of the sort of the, the great pleasures of my life was just the, the field archaeology. And I continue with it. I mean, I've worked, I worked in, in the UK and Italy, Mongolia briefly. So I still, I still sort of pick up the trowel and, and head out. And if I can find a place, you know, where I can volunteer on a dig, then I, I'll do it. That's awesome. That was one of my questions is how, how much that is still in your life? So it sounds like it, you're still out there. Yeah, yeah, I think my one sort of ambition now is to get on uh, an art, a Neanderthal dig somewhere. So uh, I obviously have to head back to Europe for that, as we've yet to find a Neanderthal in North America. It wouldn't surprise me if we did, but one of the problems with North American archaeology is people have a cutoff date, or they used to anyways, so if they were to sort of hit stuff that was glacial, they would stop digging. Mm. And so if, if you never dig past it on the assumption that nothing's there, there's no way to actually prove that there's nothing there. Right. That's how it is. So Yeah. It's what, it's what you know until, uh, up until that point. And then, yeah. All right, we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> yeah. 
Absolutely. Can you describe when your life switched from full-time archaeology to full-time writing? If there, well, you already answered if there's still a mixture of both, but well, it, there is. Um, but archaeology, by the by the time I was trying to become a full-time writer, uh, the archaeology stuff had basically dried up. Um, the funding was disappearing. Um, we had moved to the UK, and it's a bit snob snobby, I guess would be the word, uh, in, in terms of archaeology in the UK. So all my experience counted for nothing. So when I was trying to get jobs um, in, in, um, in the UK as an archaeologist, uh, it just it didn't account for anything. I couldn't even get a job as an excavator. Wow. So I was ending up doing other jobs. Um, I worked for Toyota, the head office car company. And I was doing, yeah, a lot of uh, temp jobs. A lot of things that just sort of, you know, to bring in some kind of money. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was more of the transition period between the two. Um, I think had I stayed in North America, then I would have definitely moved on in archaeology. And one of the things I found, though, is that when you, when you end up in a position where you're a field director, um, it's not as much fun because you've got all the administration, all the bureaucracy, and you don't get time to, you don't get a chance to dig. Yeah. And um, so I was, I was kind of losing some of the field work was losing its luster because I was not sort of able to just go and do what I wanted to do, like survey and dig. Mm-hmm. So. The hands-on stuff was no more. Oh, yeah. Other than the novels, do you write anything else? I've been writing, I've just been writing essays. And with the COVID thing, for some reason, I hit into some kind of memoir style um, recollections of uh, archaeological digs and um, most of them are either amusing or harrowing it's one or the other and so I just started writing some essays and that kind of stuff but I've been writing about writing for a long time mm-hmm. so I write essays on um, on narrative structure if people who don't know tabletop gaming was one of the background or the reasons for the background of mm-hmm. the series correct there's no better way to, to world build than to actually uh, run a campaign, run a game. That makes sense. The uh, we actually for my full time job, that's what we'll try and do for group building as well. We we've only done it for a couple of years, but we try and do a a D and D session together, and we all we all, all right. learn together. What you know, the person writing it, she does a great job. She's um she's done it for a long time, so she knows how to help. But it's amazing how um how much everybody responded to it and how quickly people started to grasp it, and so. Can you speak on how kind of pop culture has kind of taken on to the D&D, um, you know, culture it, itself yeah. and brought it to the mainstream? Yeah, it's, um, I know when I was at university, for my undergraduate, my first degree, I know there was a, uh, an, a D&D gaming club at the, at the university. And Cam, Ian Estimont, was was definitely part of that. But it was completely outside my, my sphere of um, experience. I just, it was like, it was almost too geeky for me to actually um, go and do that kind of stuff. And that changed very quickly once I met Cam and, and he actually ran a game uh, on a dig, which was a disaster, but it, it, it sort of, it planted the seed. And then we became very good friends and then roommates and, um, at university and we just started gaming incessantly. But I think what's happened is it's partly 
Marvel Comics and their uh, um, profound success on, on film and television. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, which triggered, I guess, a kind of pulling Comic-Cons into the mainstream mm-hmm. in terms of our sensibilities. And then from there, the whole notion of um, tabletop games of all kinds suddenly became more, more mainstream than ever before. And so we've seen a renaissance, I think, in, in board gaming. You know, there, there's at least two places here in Victoria, which is not a big city, which before the lockdown were places where people would just gather and, and play board games, mm. um, you know, all afternoon. And there'd be, you know, a cafe attached to it and a sales area for games themselves, but like rows upon rows of uh, you know, big tables for people to game. When I was like 19, 20, you would not find that anywhere. Anywhere, and now it's 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 been made, I guess, an acceptable behavior, mm-hmm. um, which I think is brilliant. It's 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 a long time in coming to see that. But of course, what happens, <clears throat> which I've seen in comic cons, is the big players then take over. So comic cons are very much uh, run by the largest, uh, the biggest of the uh, media entertainment industries. So that that air of a independence um, and sort of homegrown kind of stuff has all been pulled away by, by the big money and uh, the necessity to sort of bring top-line actors, and et cetera, into Comic-Cons. And one of my experience has certainly been that writers of novels who get invited to these things, we're shunted off to one side. We're, we're, we're not of much interest. <laughs> but it's, it's, so that does happen. Things, things get taken over. Once they become legitimized, they become commercial. Mm. It's it's the the wheel continues to turn. Yeah. But it is it is you do bring up a good point about that that homegrown independent in the indie feel to everything is is kind of removed. I think it's still there. I think it's fighting. Um and I think one of the things that has helped has has been the availability of resources online and, and computer-based resources that are allowing independence to Thrive, I think, in many respects, they're, had, they're able to step around the kind of monolithic sort of corporate entity that that controls so many things. And one of the things I have to say is, um, because uh, I'm presently working with two other people on a project that I'm not going to talk too much about yet, we're we're working with Real Engine, on you know, which is basically a program that allows you to build games, if you will. Uh, but it does other things. But they uh, they have just done an extraordinary job of, of uh, making that open and available to everyone and then providing a granting agency and all the rest. And they're just amazing. They're, but they are so, in many respects, they are kind of anti-corporate. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really nice to see. And I think you're going to see more of that kind of stuff where stuff is made available to anybody. And you can go out there and, and you know start creating your own work and it will find an audience. So it, it's it's a bit of a golden age at the moment. That's that's interesting, and and what kind of comes to mind is something like um you know developers want to fund their own video game on Kickstarter, or and they go out, they already know essentially how many people are going to buy it now, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so yeah. that is really incredible in a direct line from audience to creator. Absolutely, and yeah. so and you kind of see that now, like you know, me and my wife talk about YouTube and Twitter. And we yeah. have two young kids and, and we just kind of see, and our generation is kind of unique in that we get, we've gotten to see the whole 
gamut of a lot of it. And so now we're kind of like, man, YouTube's, you know, they're, they're losing their edge. Like no one's going to want to go to this site after a long time. And then it's, well, something waiting right in the wings is things like Twitch, where again, the, the creator can, can curate its own kind of its own delivery mechanism. And so it's great because it's, it's for the corporations, the big ones, it's kind of like whack-a-mole, right? You know, <laughs> pretty much everywhere they basically buy out something, buy out some system to, to embrace and sort of become that part of that interconnected monolithic entity. Um, something else pops up somewhere. So I'm always, always impressed by just the determination of independent thinkers and innovators to constantly sort of find ways around these things. And I think that's probably the healthiest aspect of this whole internet generation is that sort of element of independence that is is fighting against that sort of monopolistic uh, old-style approach to things. And so it's it's interesting because individually none of them have the power to take on, you know, the big, you know, the big ones, the big companies. Not only that, quite often they get co-opted by them. But there's enough individuals that the battle is is definitely still in the trenches. And so it's cool to see. Very cool to see. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm speaking as an old man here who's <laughs> on the other end of uh, watching it all happen. And it's 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 great to see. Good. So th- yeah, that's you know, sometimes it can get pretty, you know, dreary sometimes in, in the, the idea of what's gonna happen. But you're right, people are continuing to find ways to just circumvent and not not be forced down the same old path as yeah. what can you say about your science fiction novels and how they allow you to step into a, a different creative territory well i haven't written that many i did one novella called the devil delivered that was quite early on and then uh, i've just i mean the last one was um a first contact novel i mean the one thing i found is it reminded me of how difficult fantasy is as a genre and I, I do think it's it's the hardest hardest genre to write, uh, convincingly, because when I sat down to write the the science fiction novel, oh, it was so relaxing. It was so relaxing to be in this world, where I don't have to build up almost all those other aspects that that are, are part and parcel of of world building in a fantasy setting where the laws of physics are, are circumvented by magic, mm-hmm. um, presence of gods and, and immortality and all the rest. So it's, it's a pleasure to write, and it certainly, um, there's a, there's, it becomes addictive in that respect. Uh, you want to stay there because it's, it's so much easier. <laughs> it's so much easier. But of course, you know, in terms of reputation, everything was, for me, derived from the fantasy setting. And so there's, there's always a pull that pulls me back into fantasy. But I don't read it anymore, so... I feel kind of really way on the outside. Um, I, I don't read fantasy. It, not anymore, but you... No, not for at least 10 years, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I read of, SF, a lot of SF. Okay, okay. On one of your other interviews, you mentioned that to be a writer, you have to constantly be reading. And so it's interesting yeah. to, that you've stepped out of fantasy for a decade. Yeah, well, um, you know, the Malassan Book of the Fallen, it's it's... It's over 10 years old now in terms mm-hmm. of its completion. I kind of threw everything I had into that series. Uh, everything I wanted to sort of approach and discuss, or rather uh, examine uh, within the fantasy genre, I, I crammed in there somewhere. 
so there there is a sense of well, what more can I say uh, on this kind of stuff? Mm. Um, you know, I can I can plunge back into the world and have some fun writing. You know, really a story that's not going to dismantle you know the tropes or or anything along those lines. In a sense, the Malazan ten books have already sort of set that precedent anyway. So I can just sort of relax about those things. And I certainly found when I sat down to write the first Carson novel. It was it was a pleasure to get back into the world, and this time around there was no pressure, um, okay. because the Malazan series had a lot of pressure for me in terms of what I wanted to do with it, mm. and that pressure seems to be uh, seems to have lifted, and that's kind of nice. That's great. Yeah. Real quickly before we jump into some of the more detailed and spoilery content or questions. What do you do for recreation? Do you watch do you watch shows and or do you read beyond um, sci-fi? What do you read graphic novels or anything of that sort? Um, not graphic novels. I read a lot of nonfiction. Okay. Uh, a lot of science-based stuff. What else? Did I watch way too much television. Um, <laughs> paint oils occasionally, but when I'm writing, I'm not painting. So uh, and I'm writing right now, so I'm not painting. No, apart from sort of getting out and going on walks and that kind of stuff. My wife's in the habit of swimming in the sea. Wow. All, th- all through the winter. Uh, no wetsuit. <laughs> <laughs> so we go out to various places and um, explore the shorelines. Nice. Yeah. I think that's one thing I miss about Bellingham the most is being able to walk along the bay. Yeah. And there's, there's plenty of parks just right there. So Yeah, exactly. You haven't seen a sunset until you've watched sunset over water. But True enough. True enough. I asked the subreddit for some questions too, so we'll save those for the end. But okay, I particularly enjoy the like theoretically immense circumstances from some some decisions that your characters make, and specifically, I'm talking about one um, where it's he he helped. I'm going to call him the architect of the houses. He helped him you know place the final stone, and then mm-hmm. and he's gone. So. To me, as I'm reading that, I'm like, what's, what's going on here? Does that mean they're done? Is that the last, last house that goes out there? or what? I know he's just trying to help this guy from like an endless, endless line of work where it just continues to disappear on him. So you get a view into him as a character, but that, those kind of consequences are huge in my mm. mind. Mm. Yeah, well, it, it, you know, a lot of the reader response in a general sense you know, is is about the immensity of this of this world that's being built. It's deep time um, and deep history. And one of the ways to sort of convey that is to always have things going on off screen, and there uh, there's an element of sort of continuity there. And then if a character stumbles into one of those scenarios, then they're they are carrying as limited a knowledge of what's going on as the reader. And then I want to stay there. I, I want to keep it limited. Uh, I want to keep the mystery. And so you, you get to see that little window of uh, shared activity. And then, wham, it's gone. And by not going back to it, by not explaining it, I think that adds to the verisimilitude of, of the thing. And it adds to that sense of this is a, a fully sort of operating universe. But because we're tied to specific characters, we don't get to see all of it, ever. And that's kind of the reason for, for why scenes like that show up. They, they seem like they're not going anywhere, but they're actually 
serving the function of adding to the world um, with specific details rather than expositional you know, info dumps and that kind of thing. I feel like there's also a level of comedy mixed in at those oh, moments yeah. as well. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, I, I rarely read something that's actually laugh out loud. You know, you hear that term LOL all the time. But there, there are points in your books and uh, what was it? Memories of Ice where they call upon some, some ghosts to scale the wall. And then the rest of the team is still down at the bottom and they're looking up after they all scaled and he's wrestling with one of the ghosts to get the, the rope back and just little moments like that. I think they help, they helped me in, in a sense, um, just get through some of the heavier parts, some of the, sure. Yeah. And that sort of that pattern in a sense, undermining the solemnity of, uh, various scenes is something that Cam and I did regularly when we were gaming. And so that is sort of tipping, you know, when I say I, write to, I was writing to the audience of one, uh, and, and that was Cam, well, scenes like that are basically reminding both of us uh, of, what, of how much fun the gaming actually was and the campaigns we did, because there was a lot of, I mean, there were so whole episodes, uh, whole gaming nights that were just comedic, you know, and, and because, yeah, I mean, what else are you going to do? We're going to... We, don't have, we had no money, so we sat at home and we gamed. I remember we had a television, but it was, it was a cabinet-style black-and-white television. And I think I had all of three channels. And, and I had a, at the time, I had a, a pet boa constrictor, which would continually escape in the apartment. <laughs> and it went straight for the, the back of the cabinet on this television because of the, the vacuum tubes were nice and warm. Yep. It would wrap itself around all through the back of the television. Behind it, wrapped around all these tubes, and of course we couldn't turn on the television because it would cook the the snake. So uh, <laughs> we didn't, you know, it just sort of sat there like this enormous chunk of furniture. So yeah, we had very little to do, and so you gotta, you know, if you're gonna entertain, make it fun. Um, the comedic elements were always there; they were always there in the gaming, and so that to me was just bearing that in mind that you know we had a blast doing this and. If we can sort of convey some of that across to the reader, then all the better. Well, yeah, it definitely comes across as some perfect timing of just a little break. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, well, it's a lot like that on digs as well. Sometimes you end up in a project that is just horrendous, and the only way to actually maintain your sanity is, is uh, to head for the comedy side of things. Anyways, go on with your question. No, no, that's okay. That's all right. I um I feel like we should mention Cam. I, we haven't really necessarily mm-hmm. introduced him, but could you give the audience a little background on um? Well, Cam. Um, I think there's a there's, there remains an element of shyness in Cam. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know that was there from the very beginning. His sense of humor is far more dry than mine is, but it's it, it can be absolutely exquisite. I know he wrote one whole section in. I think it's blood and bone. It's it's a march through a jungle with an army, and the point of view is from um, basically the top administrator, uh, not the leader of the of the army, but the, the administrator. And some of the humor in this guy is just it's not it's not it's never overt, so it's always sort of behind the scene. But and so that's one aspect about Cam that I think a lot of readers are not noticing is that mm-hmm. there is plenty, plenty of humor in his work. 
uh, but it's very, very dry. It is bone dry. Um, <laughs> and so Cam and I, I mean, you know, when we work together, like on scripts and stuff, it, yeah, I, there would be a lot of a lot of um, just joking around, a lot of laughing. At the same time, yeah, he's not as, as sort of uh, present online for practical reasons. Um, he's got three boys uh, who use up the bandwidth big time. Because, <laughs> well, I mean, they're up in Alaska. They're in Fairbanks. Oh, okay. And, uh, internet services is, is well, let's let's call it third world. <laughs> it's okay. just yeah, it's not bad up there. And so um, he's not really able to to do this kind of you know like these kind of things. Um, it's a bit more difficult for him. That always um, on or always connected type of thing. They're always yeah. yeah yeah. One character I find incredibly funny is is Kellenved. Is that how I say yeah. Kellenved? Yeah. And that's Cam. <laughs> he role played that character. Okay. Okay. Dancer was my NPC. Okay. And of course, Kellenved wasn't called Kellenved for the gaming. He was called Wu. Ah, right. Doctor the... Wu, in fact. Oh. Which is uh, based off the Steely Dan song, because uh, you know you play music when you're gaming. So yes. Yeah. And that's where Doctor Wu came in. Original content they're from is Quan Quan Tali or Quan Tali. Mm-hmm. When you have characters like that, do you, how much does the audience response make you want to continue to give or take away from that character? Is there, the question in there is, do you feel compelled to serve the audience or, or kind of reject what they're asking more of? Neither, I think. I think one, one is compelled to serve the story. And sometimes the story is, is, extends beyond this this you know one individual novel but it, the story relates to in this case all 10 books and so you're right to serve the story and, and I knew that you know I'm shifting points of view a fair bit so I knew that even if some readers you know weren't um, grabbed by one point of view it wouldn't take long before we pop to another one that maybe they liked more and that certainly has seems to have panned out in terms of what I have seen in, in with response to reader uh, likes and dislikes. You know, lots of readers hate for listen, and lots of readers hated uh, the my and, and Memories of Ice um, in those sections. And that was always going to happen because you cannot please everyone all the time. So I think one of the ideas was to move and shift points of view sufficiently enough to hopefully have at least one character appeal to every reader mm-hmm. somewhere in there. And so that you know, characters would have very, very different takes and approaches on things. And some were ultra-violent; others wanted to avoid violence. Some were lo- loquacious, and and others, you know, you couldn't get a word out of them. And so, yeah, you just sort of playing, playing with sort of different approaches in order to basically create a collection of characters that at least one, you know, is going to appeal to to every reader. Speaking of violent characters, who played is Carsa? Carson was played by a friend of mine, another archaeologist named Mark Paxton McRae. The whole book one of House of Chains uh, was the campaign that I ran. He was unaware that he was a Tablor uh, or a Toblokai. So, yeah, yeah, Mark had no idea what he was heading into when I ran that game. It was it was a it was a really good game, and and I know when I wrote the that section, I stayed very close to. Um, 
the actual what we had gained oh cool yeah that's great that that's a wild ride that first book and i i feel like that was one of the books that i just cruised through as well and it was right yeah interesting i haven't mentioned yet that a lot of actions could in your books could have been decided on just a die roll is mm-hmm. that is that accurate so um, my question is is do you have a plan for either or if there's a battle between two characters and if this one loses then we're going to move on with the story that you already planned or hopefully this one doesn't lose or you know doesn't win because we don't have a plan no no um and that's one of the things this is why i i when i recommend to every writer beginning writer that they try role-playing uh, try to run a game is to deliver the lesson of humility because basically you're driving a narrative but you have no control over the characters because the characters are played by other people. Mm. And so, so they will take that story, that narrative of yours, and they'll twist it and mangle it and screw it up completely. And that's a great lesson. But not only that, it, it can then teach you to be relaxed about it so that you maintain your grip on, on some kind of spontaneity in the creative process. Because I think if you overplan it, you can take some of the life out of the story. So no, when things are decided on a dice dice roll, we simply had no idea where it was going from there. <laughs> and that was part of the entertainment was like, because then one of us, you know, whoever's running the campaign would then head off to their room and spend the next three, four nights making notes and working out where this was going from here. Right. Gotcha. And that was sort of, it's so it, it becomes a it's a building process, it's a creative process that continues rather than fighting fighting with your characters in order to force your narrative uh, in a specific direction. So um, no, we we kept it we kept that spontaneity mm-hmm. definitely. It's it, yeah. There's some you know throw your hat across the room, what the <laughs> f moments and and then once I found that out, it was kind of like it floored me even more. But <clears throat> But then you started to appreciate the, the ability to create with that kind of method. And so, well, yeah, but I mean, if you're going to invest sort of in a character and then kill them off, to me, it seems incumbent that you should do enough so that when that character does die, it has an emotional impact rather than one sensing that, oh, the author got rid of that character because he's bored with them. You know, it's like, yeah. You don't want that. Um, you want an emotional impact. Mm-hmm. So you build towards it. But there were times where later on, uh, I think Reaper's Gale, where one specific character, I didn't know he was going to die. And then I realized about three quarters of the way through the novel that I had been foreshadowing that, that death all along. And I was just going to have to go with it. Mm-hmm whether i liked it or not mm-hmm. and um so that's what i did i think i remember who you're talking about it's and i'll bleep this out are you talking about from it was he no, Gale? no i'm not talking about okay because that's a character that i'm i know a lot of people will c- consistently write about and how, how caught off guard they could be with some of the things that happened in his yeah story. well he was not gamed he was entirely yeah sort of created for the for the novel uh, as fiction which is what makes it, I guess, tighter in many respects. Uh, maybe less messy in some respects. But um, that, was, that was an exploration of innocence and the fact that innocence so often uh, in our world is preyed upon. And yet 
you know, the sense of not family as you were born with, but family as you as you gather around you is uh, crucial, especially if the family you were born with was so dysfunctional that it's traumatized you for the rest of your life. The family you then create around you then has to stand in for a lot of a lot of the necessary healing that's that, that's required from somebody who has grown up in a bad situation. And so it, it was that aspect of the military that I wanted to approach because I am well aware that a lot of people end up in the military um, because they're fleeing bad situations. And then what the military then becomes is, is an extended family. That is crucial. It is crucial to, to their well-being. So that's the kind of story, or that was the story I wanted to explore. And, of course, for yeah, it's a very self-contained story. It's, um, if you were to pull it all out and stick it together, I don't think it's more than 20 pages. Right. Yeah. But the, the impact of those, of those yeah. uh, passages are just, it's incredible. I'd, well, I think when innocence is, is abused, it is so brutal that it just, you know, it, it grabs the heart, right? Yeah. Uh, even though he was physically grown as an adult, he was not an adult. He was a child. Yeah, and every every other soldier, you know, it, normally yeah. the dialogue ended with them just sadly looking at him, just yeah. dawning yeah. upon them, you know, what this what this poor guy's been through, most likely. Yeah, and in that sense, he becomes who they're all fighting for. When characters change like that, they have a huge, magnificent transformation. Well, the thing with trans transformation is that it's always ephemeral it, it doesn't and it doesn't last so i guess that's one of the sort of the things that the series is exploring throughout the the 10,000 plus pages is that uh, nothing stays the same it, it, everything is evolving everything is changing and you can struggle to hold on to something but the world will sort of drag you kicking and screaming so even that, you know, that, that change that affected the, the at that point, it was, it was a temporary kind of thing. It was a, it was a cleansing. But right. that cleansing, you know, the individuals still have to interact with the world, and so the stains start returning. Ah, that yeah. makes sense. That makes sense. I, on a different interview, this is completely off, off the subject, <clears throat> but I wanted to ask you, you mentioned... In the movie The Dark Knight Rises, which I know is, is a long time ago it came out, but you mentioned something about Bane versus Batman. Can you talk a little bit about that and that underlying, that subliminal message? Well, uh, um, they weren't very subliminal, were they? They were pretty overt. <laughs> right. Um, well, Bane was basically uh, voicing quotes when you could understand him, which wasn't easy, <laughs> that were coming from the Occupy movement um, that just preceded that. And it was present, um, and it was being responded to at least in, in places like New York with intense brutality, like like over you know sort of extreme violence by by the authorities, even though these people were simply passively resisting. And then of course you're then looking at a basically an argument that the the billionaire is the salvation of the entire you know social network. Despite the fact the billionaire is making tons of money selling, you know, armaments all over the world, so it, so many elements of it were just offensive to actually watch. 
almost as offensive as the second Iron Man film, which just <laughs> it's like I I I don't know what to say about that one. It's so um, <laughs> because again you've got this this industrialist, this billionaire, again making weapons, but it turns out the father of this and, and you know Tony Stark inherited this company, but his father actually stole the technology from uh, a partner in Russia. And then, you know, abandoned that partner who then ended up living in complete, you know, penury and poverty and struggled to make the same kind of technology that um, Stark Industries or whatever they're called were making. And the son then gets that stuff and comes across and is the bad guy. And you think, well, wait a minute, you know, um, who did the stealing here, right? <laughs> it's like, why is this the bad guy? And it just made no sense. It made no sense. But, you know, there's quite often, um, it takes a bit to sort of deconstruct, you know, I mean, a lot of these superhero movies, the plots are utterly nonsensical. And yet, some of the things they're, they're implying are just so offensive. And so, it's hard to fathom sometimes. And you don't know whether it's deliberate or not, or whether it's subconscious. Right. Um, but I don't know. No, I, I agree. It is interesting. You've got, you know, the guy with the Russian accent and here comes Tony Stark on one side and then the, you know, soldier in the Stark armor on this side and the Russian guys in the middle battling and all that. It is like, who's, who's different than all <laughs> What's the difference? Dude? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I've talked to somebody who's, who's very good at deconstructing this stuff and, you know, he was pointing out it, it was such, it would have been such an easy fix is that, Tony Stark and that Russian guy actually work together, and the Russian guy ends up dying in the end. And Stark, you know, Tony feels, you know, great remorse. That that would have been a hell of a good story, but that's not the direction they went. So it's strange. It's strange. It's a kind of um, an adoration of of the ultra rich, and mm. we're seeing it. Played out in, in films, and, and so these superheroes are, you know, ultra rich, and they obviously play by different rules, and that's what's being shown. Right. right. No, it's and it, that's a you know he's the American superhero. He represents that you know ultra rich, and that's you know that's America with the cars and the stuff and the you know the sleek finish on all of your furnishings and everything. It's just the way. Um, yeah. So he's got to win. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, Conversely, and, I mean, uh, you know, Marvel did some really cool stuff with Jessica Jones and, and some of the, you know, the street level, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but what I'm finding the most, the most uh, rewarding right now is is boys. Um, oh yeah, the uh, yeah, that's a that's a very clever deconstruction. Right, and that of the, the monstrosity of superheroes. Yeah. Right, and just how how ludicrous it would be if this was reality. If this was like it's just the way that every character is kind of nodded to, and and you know both both sides have a um, Homelander style character in Marvel and DC. Oh, yeah. and they're they're all there, represented. Yeah. Wonder Woman's there. It's obvious, and so that show is great. That's one of the shows I've I've been I've actually caught up on. Is oh is yeah, just because in you know you've seen it before with like. Uh, the walking dead was a really successful show or is a successful show that you know those come from independent comics that have published well before all of this and that mm-hmm. 
it's it's been around but i I think a lot of it's finally getting to the mainstream a little bit of those alternate alternate versions of the same old stories but of course what happens with the mainstream is that it takes that that element of independence that that deconstructive almost postmodernist kind of approach and it just it just twists it twists it It pulls it back into the status quo right yeah it kind of it it's all for naught at the end of that yeah yeah i was gonna ask i can't remember now i'm sorry i'm don't worry about it <laughs> i got a quick question randomly how, how often are you is it is someone petition you to create a quick bend in in kalam series kalam is that how you would say it yeah i'll call kalam um kalam i don't think i've ever been petitioned to make a series on what him. um yeah no one was those two characters and and you split them up for some time in in certain areas of the book but those the backstories those guys must have would be interesting for me for me personally yeah well certainly the backstories you know that was their gamed characters uh i rolled up quick then the origin of the name is even more amusing because we were we were um both at the university of victoria we had a flat here in victoria and that old television I'm telling you about. <laughs> and I think one day the snake was not wrapped up in the television, so we were watching it. And um, a classic Paul Newman film came out called, based on a William Faulkner story uh, called The Long Hot Summer. Okay. And the primary character's name is Ben Quick. Uh. And he's a fire starter. And I think... Around that time was when I rolled up Quick Ben. I just all I did was take the name and flip it, yeah. and that was it. That was the origin of the name. I don't think I've ever told that story before. So that's that, that's a really time. that's yeah. awesome. That's great. I yeah I don't know if if I've read and, that on any of the forums. Or no, anything. no, and, and Kalam was again another role. I think he was rolled up. Yeah, he was the two characters I rolled up for, for that stuff. But it was funny because you know I rolled up Fiddler at some point as well. Uh, Hedge was an NPC, Hedge. and so was Mallet, I think, and Trots. So, like, when it's just two people gaming, you need to roll up multiple characters, and, and you play the multiple characters. And so, yeah, there, there's a lot of that pairing up thing going on uh, all the time. So, yeah, those two, yeah, they, they have a pretty good backstory in terms of the gaming stuff, which then, of course... Gardens of the Moon starts well after you know most of the gaming, so most of the the, the empire building has already happened, which we gamed, but which you, only now Cam is writing about. So that's interesting. That's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> How is the interest uh, level for the Toblakite trilogy? Are people kind of clamoring at you a lot? We um they were um. It's been a bit of a delay because of the COVID thing. You know, publishing houses were not printing books for a long time because the, the factories are closed. So, yeah, there has been a bit of delay. I'm still waiting on the manuscript. So usually the manuscript arrives and they give me a 10-day turnaround. And so i got to edit instantly and, and get it back to them. Once that happens, then then they can be, they can be fairly firm on the date. And uh, it's all out of my hands anyways. But... Ah, that's exciting. Um, yeah. I mentioned I just finished Forge of Darkness, which I absolutely loved. And I held mm-hmm. off um, on Fall of Light just for a little bit. Just 
I have to leave something in, in the queue so that I can, there's always time to read later. But with your series though, like I already want to reread Forge of Darkness. I already feel much more of an understanding and now I want to catch that first half of the book again mm. with that. But one thing I want to ask actually about Forge of Darkness and maybe get your your comments on it is Hust is, he's speaking with Kellerus after he's been petition to forge and rake a sword correct mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and hust is kind of like ignoring the request he's kind of just he's talking to keller I said his words on power are can it be that these who hold the greatest power also hold the greatest fear presumably power grants its wielder the means to challenge fear yet it would seem it does not work for long by this, we must conclude power is both meaningless and delusional. Mm-hmm. Is well, that... What, what do you want me to say on that one? I guess who that's intended for. Who is ah, that statement well, for? Uh, it's hard for me to go back that far uh, in terms of my mindset at the time. But I know I read an essay, an article, only a couple of years ago that seemed to sort of reiterate that notion. And it was an article describing the extremes to which the you know the point one percent of the world are going to in terms of building armored yachts, um, hideaways, secret places, um, basically everything to in anticipation of you know the mob coming for them. And I remember it was a very interesting article, and it, it and I, the conclusion was that these people were were driven by fear absolute fear and so I thought well you know you bring up that quote and I'm going yeah I guess so <laughs> I guess you know power yeah. and wealth um, you know there there are other prices that you pay for them because uh, I mean if there's an instinctive need that once you acquire that you want to protect it so. yeah it's interesting that they're almost like a chase for immortality it's an it's an endless it's an endless mm -hmm. scheme um, yeah and uh, no one's ever going to catch that. So <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but your books do, just like this with Hust speaking, and maybe with Forge of Darkness because it's so fresh in my mind. But mm -hmm. the way that characters will explain human nature or the way that people treat each other, it's pretty spot on, and it it, it allows you to think a little bit differently in today's world where everything can be so material and like um i mean in all honesty the the capitalist nature of their country is to acquire and protect yours you know get mine get more of it and so when you pair that with the fact that uh, you know death waits for nobody and you're not going to outrun it it there is a level of freedom with knowing that even though you know it could be considered a pretty dark notion when you don't pay attention to all of these all of these things that you're trying to to protect and you you're convincing yourself are going to allow you to live longer live a better life there's a, there's some amount of freedom to that and, and to circle back your characters just they sometimes when they're explaining different motivations or or backgrounds to another character's uh, yeah, actions it's you stop and think for a moment like man i've I've got a whole new outlook on on walking forward with life now, and so mm. I guess in the difference 
between the 10 book series and then the later books mm-hmm. you've written what's what's the differences in response to those and how have your fans accommodated the new the new material you produce uh, i don't think they have actually <laughs> um i would say there's more interest in the malazan book of the fall and the 10 books now uh than there were five there was five years ago so it seems that that series is displaying uh I guess longevity, you know, more than than my expectations that it would. The thing with the Carcanus trilogy is is the sales were just non-existent. And in retrospect, I think I didn't wait long enough between completing the Triple God and writing Forge of Darkness. Um, You know, I thought I was going to take, you know, a couple months off, even six months off after finishing uh, Crippled God. And I think I took a week at the most. Wow. And then I was back. But I also knew that, that the Carcanus trilogy was going to be linguistically challenging for a reader, which is why it's structured in a very traditional fashion. You know, I, in a sense, I couldn't, I couldn't do to Forge of Darkness what I did with the Malazan series in terms of moving around to the extent and points of view. I did shift points of view, but I stayed with people for a lot longer. And it, it is a very traditionally structured novel, but the language, that's a whole different beast. I remember, I, I think I had a, a really crappy early Kindle or something. And anyways, I downloaded the collected works of Shakespeare. And I just, that was my, my warm-up for, for writing uh, the Arcanus trilogy. And uh, what I liked about what I was reading in the Shakespeare stuff was it had that element kind of declamatory, uh, declamation element to it, which was tied in, of course, to stage presentation, oration, that kind of thing, uh, which then goes right back to sort of the Greeks and um, the chorus and all the rest. And so I thought, well, that's quite indicative of the evolution of storytelling. So if I'm going to go back, way back in time with this story, then I'm going to hold on to that kind of stuff. And that will sort of keep it very separate from, from the, the writing style of, of the Malazan Book of the Fallen. Mm-hmm. But basically, I don't, think I, I don't think I was able to take as many readers along with me on it. And then when I found out, you know, later on, after Fall of Light, uh, that the sales had just were non-existent, that just did, took the wind right out of my sails. So, and that's where I basically set that aside and thought, okay, well, Carsa, the Carsa trilogy, it brings us back to the Malazan, you know, universe, the Malazan world, as uh, the fans know. Um, and so I'll head that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's exciting. I mean, <clears throat> like you mentioned, the staying power of the ten book series as people continue to get into that, and mm-hmm. um, you know, and I don't, I haven't mentioned it yet, but there's a lot of your fans that they'll reread the series multiple, multiple times. Yeah, and it's you're gonna get something new every time you do it, and that's. Part of the reason I wanted to start it is I wanted something that, you know, clearly it's long enough to really <laughs> flesh out a full world, but also to revisit it and that that mystery all over again when you start the series over. So it's it's I'm excited to start my next read read through. I'm hoping I'll probably start it next year in January and mm-hmm. get through Fall of Light. But that's interesting you say and I, not given enough time between the Cripple God and Forge of Darkness because that. A one-week break between finishing that ten book series. I know. Going. I think it was it was it was kind of um, 
almost a physical high because mm. finishing the crippled god only then after I finished did I realize that I'd been sort of carrying all that pressure and that burden sort of uh, of the series um, the necessity to finish it to reach those final scenes have been driving me to an insane degree and so when that burden lifted there's it, it like this element of elation um, and so that sort of fired up my ambition that okay I'll, I'll I'll go quasi Shakespearean on this thing and, and write the next you know ne- write the next one, yeah, and then a series, and I ran with that for for at least you know three years, even though Fall of Light was was an absolute battle because I didn't know if I was going to be able to get away with the ending I had in mind. Oh, um, and now I'm finally back to writing Walk in Shadow, and um, so I, I I always felt bad that I, basically I hadn't finished the trilogy. Because I know readers are getting continually burned by investing in a trilogy that uh, you know that, or a series that doesn't end. Ah, yeah, that's well, it's, it's thoughtful of you. <laughs> Keep everybody. Yeah, well, I, I mean, yeah, I would, you know, I'm a reader as well. I'm not just you know a writer. So there are science fiction series that you know I've started up on, and yeah, you're left waiting, you know, for the next one. That's very frustrating. Uh, it's understandable because pressure builds on a writer. The deeper into a series you get, the greater the pressure, because now you have to looking at you're looking at innovation uh, of your storytelling style and methods in order to keep the, the reader interested, um, and you're considering the sense of keeping things new and fresh. And the more you build in that world, the more doors are being closed with each book in terms of possibility, and so it get it does get harder. It does get harder. Oh, I can only imagine. You might feel like you're writing yourself into a corner or something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a common example in writing workshops and stuff with beginning writers where lots of people start things but don't finish. That's basically the same thing. So they'll start a story because they're really excited with it and they get, you know, eight, ten pages in and the pace starts slowing and you're grinding and you know. And what's happened is Every you know every scene you write, every page you write, is closing doors of possibility, and so you don't learn anything in those first ten pages as a writer. It's when you get to page eleven and you're you're sweating blood, and, and you know it's, just, <laughs> it's getting harder and harder and harder. That's the learning process. You have to push through that in order to to learn to be a better writer. Mm-hmm. And but that little, you know, that experience, and so, you know, what often happens is somebody gives up at that point, they get a new idea, and they rip away on the first 10 pages, and then they go down the hole, and it just repeats. I think there's a kind of a fractal element to this, so that with a big series, it's the same thing. You move along into the series, and those doors are closing and closing, and it gets harder and harder and harder, and then, because your creative mind never stops, you know, thinking and creating, you suddenly get to the idea for a new series, mm-hmm. and off you go. Um, and then you're working on that new series. And you're going to be into the new series, but you haven't finished the old series. It, it, I think it's, it's a common trap in terms of the creative process, mm-hmm. um, that the hard work is... is um, and especially if, if you've been moderately successful, and so there's not sort of financial pressures on you. The temptation to then slip over to into another storyline is huge. Absolutely huge. 
Well, when you're creating, I mean, a lot of artists can absolutely agree with you what you're talking about no matter what the medium is you know you get euphoria the excitement level of the new yeah. idea oh well I, this thing this is next i want to i want to flesh this out next you don't learn anything unless you're digging yourself out of some of those yeah. rough points that or those sticky spots can you speak a little bit about is it tisti edur or edur edur it's ticed ticed yeah. okay ticed all right you mentioned in Midnight Tides, they are almost you know, a what if, if the Sioux had won and had well, marched the on the Capitol. Yeah, the storyline for Midnight Tides was generated okay. by, by that, yeah. Okay, How, but I felt, and I didn't know that at the time of reading it, but I, I felt very much that, that tribe um, culture with them when they, you know, they were discussing all the formalities and all of the different social rules that they that they have and the the amount of honor and saving face that you have to to, to display to everybody it felt it felt like um an american indian tribe you know in some well it, it basically they are they're coastal they're, they're west coast culture that's what they're kind of modeled on okay uh the haida would be sort of one of my main sources so yeah even though i was thinking about the you know, the scenario in which the Lakota found themselves in, in war with the United States as the plot element, the, the, the plot questions that I was going to explore. But in terms of the culture, no, I planted them right on the West Coast. Okay. Um, and the reason being the Lakota culture, the horse culture, it was a very young, very young culture. So it was still in its infancy and still in its expansion phase when it ran up against the 7th Cavalry and all the rest. So that's a very, very specific scenario there. Um, and the West Coast peoples... Okay, the other difference is the Lakota probably were pastoral nomadic, they're always mm. called hunting the, hunting the bison. So they're on the move constantly. And I wanted a group that was fixed in place. And, of course, one of the uh, most fecund subsistence environments is, is the West Coast mm. of North America, especially when if you're feeding off your, your primary food source, say, is salmon. There's a good reason for why these cultures here uh, on this coast were uh, as elaborate and as set in place as they were. They didn't have, you know, they, didn't, they weren't facing starvation if the herds didn't show up. So... Yeah, very much a culture that then is going to build very complex um, social structure. Whereas the Lakota, it was complex, but it was fluid and it was evolving, and it got that evolution got stopped in its tracks. Basically. Right. So we never really got to see its full manifestation. I think it would have driven the people like the Mandan um, right away from agriculture, because they would have been preyed on constantly. So they would have abandoned it, and then you would have had almost a Mongol or Hun-style, you know, horse culture right across the central plains of, of North America. It would have been an extraordinary thing to see, <laughs> for sure. My mom is Lakota. She's a quarter. Um, yeah, and so my grandpa, who I never met, but I am named after him. My name is Corbin, and he was Corbin, uh, Corbin John McGaugh, but he was in the Army, and one of, he was in the cavalry for the Army. <laughs> so. It's a very um, wow. yeah i i wish i wish i would have met him but it, he he died when my mom was pretty young when she was 14 and so have you been have you been to south dakota i have yeah yeah 
Yeah. And I wish I, I wish I was a little older when I went. Um, I think the age when I was, yeah, I I think so. It would be incredible to revisit that. You know, now with what, what I've learned, how old I am. Yeah. It can be uh, sobering. Mm -hmm. You know, you go to the museum here in South Dakota and it is, it can be devastating. It can be devastating because the descriptions of the genocide is so matter of fact. It is so almost as if, you know, that, that manifest destiny is implicit in everything that's being described. And there's no sense of, of remorse or guilt or anything in any of the display cabinets, any of the write-ups. It's like yeah, my wife and I came out of that place and we were just, I think we were ashen-faced. We couldn't believe what we were reading in this thing. And and then and all you know if you're doing a driving trip yeah it, you know go into all the restaurants along the highway and you'll find you know these big glass fronted frame placards of, of spear points um, just collected and it's it's you know it's it's the legacy of the Lakota is is up there on a wall as you walk to the bathrooms and you know it's yeah yeah it's rough it's rough. So yeah, and, and if you've got an ancestral connection to that, be warned, it's going to be even rougher. It's going to be even rougher. Me and my wife have, she's been doing some of the research, you know, she's recently gone down some of just the information that she's read and it's, it mm-hmm. is absolutely, it, it makes you sick. And so, yeah, yeah. but one thing about kind of about the series and the books that you've written is that while humanity has been you know has atrocious history and atrocious past it the ways that they can learn to work together and the ways that people can get through that you know it, it, there is there is light at the end of the tunnel even you there know there is there is i mean i think one has to acknowledge that all all cultures are in transition constant it's constant and then when two cultures meet for the first time there's kind of a cross pollination that pollination that occurs that can be extremely positive, but also there's no going back. You know, once it's happened, once the contact has occurred, there is no going back. Mm-hmm. And yet, you get you know huge elements of any society will be reactionary and um, adhere to traditions and and um, hold on to the past, nostalgic in a nostalgic fashion. And that tends to be where conflicts begin to occur. And it can be just a misunderstanding. You know, you look at the, the first settlers on the North American East Coast. They thought they were looking at, you know, these huge forests, wild forests. They, they weren't wild at all. They were well-managed forests, highly productive forests. But they physically did not look like the farms that you would find in Europe. And so they simply did not recognize that this was farmland. And so they planted their flag, and, and, you know, the assumption was that they owned this wild land, and um, they had taken it over. But it was, it was, it was a managed forest, and um, that misunderstanding alone is, is sort of one of the driving forces of uh, colonialism. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, things, things are, that kind of stuff, I don't know how often it's fully explored in, in a lot of fantasy. Sometimes the, the colonial view on things is implicit. And that, that kind of sucks because that stuff really needs to be unpacked. Right. It can't yeah. just be this straightforward, no. matter-of-fact statement. Well, not if it's implicitly Eurocentric in some fashion or another. So, 
I want to ask some of these questions. I don't have a ton for you, but yeah, that's okay. the subreddit I've had to visit quite a bit. And if you are starting any of Stephen's books, then don't, don't hesitate to get in touch with some of those forums. It's just, they help you, but be warned, be very, very warned that you, something will unintentionally get spoiled. So just yeah. it happened to me. It might happen to you. Just be careful. User Niflerog asks, is it possible to figure out the Karium's mother from the text? No. N-O. <laughs> and his, I, he had a few, but I like this one. Bottle is Kettle's father via the aerosol. Does this ring true to you? Yes, I think so. Okay. That was one character that I initially got, struggled to really connect or, you know, carry on with. But then after, you know, a few books, it's, please don't let anything happen to this guy. Interesting, because Bottle was also played by Mark Paxton McRae. Ah. Yeah, he was, um, that was where I was running the game with a, a group of people. Okay. Um, there were like four of them, I think four. And uh, they were the squad. They were Fiddler's squad in the Bone Hunters. So Bottle, Smiles, Korok, and Tar mm -hmm. were all played by uh, people in Winnipeg. Smiles. The Smiles. Uh, she's, she's the gal who's always threatening to throw a knife at somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's some yeah. funny... Those, those played by uh, my friend Courtney, uh, who's this huge bearded guy, a fantastic singer, great guitar player. But the fact that he, he created a character, you know, this small woman called Smiles, was just hilarious. And <laughs> he, played, he played her very well. Yeah, she's a, well she's great. They um that I real real quick, who played uh Troll Sangar? Who was who was Troll? Nobody. Nobody, Nobody. Okay. entirely fictional. Yeah. Oh cool. What was Onrak the broken the same or is that No, he showed up a few times in the games. I had a whole list of, of Lana Mass characters, and I would go through, based on the clans, uh, the various, uh, like, Kron and Logros and all the rest. Mm -hmm. So I'd have the Bonecasters and then Notables sort of within each group. And I would simply go and pick, you know, the name that I liked the most at the time, and one of them was uh, Onrak. So, yeah. Adds Dower, or A-D-D-S Dower. Does nefarious bread actually exist or not? Okay, here's the only way I can ask, answer this question is to ask another question of that person. Okay. Do any of these characters exist? <laughs> all right, all right. Infinite, infinite Muse. This is actually, I'm, I'm going to piggyback on this one. There's a lot of theories about Quick Ben. One of them I thought was pretty interesting is that Spoiler, spoiler, uh, is that every time he's rubbing his face or something, he's changing, he's changing a spirit or the, the controlling spirit is changing. They're asking if that, if there's any information towards that theory. Well, more will be coming evident in Walk in Shadow. Okay. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want to go too much in that, but, no, no. um, because, you know, I, I write every scene like a short story. So if somebody's, you know, if they're making a particular gesture or they have a habitual gesture, there's a reason for it. So cool. that's as far as I'll go on that. That's great. That's great. All right. Final one. Suvalis wants to know the possibility of a novella about Kalor forming a successful 
thrash band with a bunch of elderly metalheads. So, yeah, I can see that happening. Right. Yes, possibly. Great. <laughs> well, I won't take any more of your time. Thank you so much for for the opportunity Anytime. to interview. Appreciate appreciate you battling through my nerves with me and. I just hope I don't see any little record lights, so I'm really hoping no. it's not recorded. I know. I know. So I'll show you the setup. So this one. Okay, right. good. Yeah, Thanks I know. I do this thing where even though I know it's recording, I'm checking constantly because good. the good. greatest fear is that all oh, that's for naught. But no, this is a this is a Zoom H5. You can. That's cool. Yeah, it's a very cheap, not a, an expensive device. It's less than three hundred dollars, and you could plug uh, XLR mics. I've got. The laptop is just a headphone jack to a quarter inch cable into it. So you can record. Can you send me, can you send me details on that? Absolutely. Like the name for it? Yeah. 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 It, the Zoom H5 and I'll, I'll, I'll send you a link about it. I love it. It's, um, it's an affordable machine. It allows me to run, you know, it, technically you can buy an attachment for the top where you could have four separate inputs on one, on one little device, two wow. AA batteries which I replace like once every few hours of recording. So um, I highly recommend this device. I'll definitely yeah. send it for you. Oh, cool. Again, thank you so much. Thank you to yeah. everybody else who's, who's, you know, sending the questions and also motivated me to continue to reach out to Steve. And I was pretty thrilled when you responded. So appreciate it. Oh, yeah, it. no problem. No problem. All right. All right well, say hi to everyone on, on the Discord then. Yeah, absolutely. Cool.